anything going on? Did I miss anything? What's new? <laughs> well, you better buckle up. Today's going to be a wild one. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Welcome to the show. Pete Callender here. 704-570-1110. 1-800-WBT-1110. Um, and if you want to email, it's Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. You can also hit me up on the Twitter machine at Pete Callender. That is with a K. Um, and an A-L-I-N-E-R. So I got a lot to get to. We are also going to be monitoring and joining in progress, dipping in and out, as it were, of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg School Board meeting. Oh, no, I'm kidding. This one's going to be pretty good. They're limiting the board members to only uh, like a minute or something of comments. And so, yeah, we should be done with it pretty quickly. But it looks like Ernest Winston's going to get fired. The uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg School Superintendent hired by the board, um, despite no experience, they actually went and got approval to hire the man because he was so inexperienced. They needed special dispensation from the state. They got it. They hired him. They were super excited. Then they re-upped his contract. They were super, super excited to do that. They gave him more money. They were super excited to do that. And now, about 18 months later, He's the problem with Charlotte Mecklenburg schools. Who knew? Who knew? This is, I know, it. This is, a, this is news to everybody that hired him, apparently. I will, so that's at 12.30, so it's about another 20 minutes or so. But before we do that, saw the story at the Charlotte Observer by Michael Gordon, the mother of a teenager who killed himself in the Mecklenburg County Jail, claims that detention officers failed to adequately observe her son, even though he had been put on tighter security. And then they tried, the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's staff tried to hide the violations by filing false reports, according to her new lawsuit. This is a federal complaint filed yesterday by Adriana Blackwell, named state correctional officials, along with members of the Sheriff's Departments in Mecklenburg and Rockingham Counties, for failing to ensure the safety of her 17-year-old son, who was from Rockingham, uh, who hanged himself, apparently, uh, in the Mecklenburg juvenile cell on November 21st, 2020. So, 2020, this was height of the pandemic. The North Carolina Department of Public Safety identified the youth at the time of his death as Desmond W. Uh, they, They don't divulge the name because he was a juvenile. The complaint alleges several constitutional violations as well as other claims against officials with the uh, State Department of Public Safety and the two sheriff's offices. The state, along with the Rockingham Sheriff's Office and the Mecklenburg Sheriff's Office, the complaint alleges, failed to adequately share the accumulating signs that Desmond was a suicide risk. Had they, the teen would have been kept under a more restrictive suicide watch in the Mecklenburg jail. This is from the lawsuit. This is the complaint. Mecklenburg Sheriff Gary McFadden uh, and his staff, who took over the custody of Desmond the day before his death, uh, Desmond had uh, been charged with first-degree murder in Rockingham County, according to the lawsuit. And then he ends up in Mecklenburg on a transfer. And the next day, 
He kills himself. Allegedly. This is a problem for Mecklenburg County Sheriff Gary McFadden. There are several of these types of cases, people who uh, died in his custody over the last few years, uh, not to mention the, you know, there's, you got a bunch of people that are upset about the backlog and the, the delays in getting concealed carry permits, um, the releasing of people from the jails. There's a lot of stuff. There are a lot of, uh, of people inside the sheriff's office and alum of the sheriff's office uh, who are not fans of the sheriff and not fans of the way he's been managing the jail. You also have the quote reformers that are out there. They and they are and they are trying to get the sheriff bounced as well because they want him to release even more people, release even more prisoners. Uh, the teenager in this case was pay, uh, was placed on suicide alert after he was admitted to the Mecklenburg jail, and that means when you're on suicide alert, not suicide watch. That's like the next level up, but alert means that you're supposed to be checked on, visually observed every 10 minutes. And he should not have been, uh, or he should have been put in a cell that had no bed sheets, no sharp objects, no movable furnishings, but none of that happened. According to the lawsuit, Desmond was not adequately observed for at least an hour. So even if he should have been on suicide alert, they still didn't come in and observe him on a regular enough schedule as required. Although the complaint says he should have been elevated to a higher watch and that would have meant more observations. After the teen's death, and this is, this is a big one, jailers manipulated documents to hide some of the observation gaps making it appear that they had made more visits to his cell than they actually had. That is a very explosive allegation. What's the old axiom? It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Questions concerning jail safety have continued to arise in state reports and in McFadden's re-election bid. He's being opposed in next month's Democratic primary by two former Mecklenburg deputies that are highly critical of his management of the jail. McFadden has blamed most of the jail safety concerns on the exodus of detention officers during the pandemic. Well, do you think maybe that could be related? You had a lot of a lot of COs leaving because of McFadden, but that also happened to coincide with the pandemic. So it was just another level of BS. Desmond left a suicide note, which he had written with a pencil that he should not have been allowed to have that said, tell my family I'm sorry. And then he wrote an acronym that says, or it stands for, if I commit suicide, at least a real N-word had killed me. And apparently that's a rap lyric. Also, the three Democratic candidates for Mecklenburg County Sheriff, they're going to be debating actually live right here on WBT on Tuesday, April 26th. The debate's going to be hosted by the Fraternal Order of Police, and WBT's Brett Jensen is going to moderate. It's going to be Tuesday, April 26th, 6.30 till 8 p.m. will be the only media outlet to air the debate live and commercial free. So uh, mark your calendars if you are interested in the operations of the Mecklenburg Jail 
and concealed carry permitting, and Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office in general, Tuesday, April 26th at 6.30, right here on WBT. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Um, the other day I was talking about uh, the Title 42 change and how Democrats uh, are now breaking ranks, jumping ship, mutiny, whatever you want to call it, against Joe Biden over this Title 42 uh, undoing, which was Title 42 is what Trump cited uh, during the pandemic in order to restrict illegal immigration uh, via asylum seekers makes them stay in their home country because of the threat of the pandemic spreading title 42 and Joe Biden plans to end that border restriction. And now you've got more and more democratic senators and candidates that are splitting with him on that idea. Politico reporting Five more Democratic Senate candidates told Politico they disagree with the way the Biden administration is phasing out Title 42. The latest sign that Biden's policy position is a big loser among purple state Democrats facing tough elections. An increasing number of Democrats say the whole thing needs to be paused. The first candidate mentioned is Sherry Beasley, the presumptive Democratic Senate nominee in North Carolina. She, quote, believes that it is not the right time to lift this policy, especially without a plan in place to deal with a potential influx of migrants, said spokeswoman Dory McMillan, formerly of the AFL-CIO. Democratic Senatorial Candidate Committee Chair Gary Peters said that Democratic senators and candidates are right to raise questions about the policy. Senate centrists. Mm hmm are leading the charge against the policy, with some even signing on to a bill to delay it. Later in the article, the CDC decided this month to roll back a suspension of some migrants into the United States, citing advances in vaccines and treatments. Officials plan to implement that on May 23rd, though a lot of people are worried that the border is going to be quickly overwhelmed. The timing of the decision is inopportune for Democrats inopportune yeah that's one way to say it catastrophic is another but inopportune can work as well i guess senate races are heating up and border politics are increasingly volatile polls show it's one of the toughest areas for democrats this fall with independent voters and even some immigration groups say the administration needs to do more to help protect the party's slim majorities quote If you have a surge of immigrants at the border, if you have mass catch-and-release policies put in place, I think you're putting all those Democrats in terrible political jeopardy, said Domingo Garcia, the president of the League of United Latin American Citizens. He said, quote, It falls into the false narrative of the Republicans that we have an open border. That's false. It's not true. But this could play into that. All right, so the article goes on from there. I won't go any further, but it's not that they oppose rescinding Title 42. The problem is 
They want to be insulated from the impact, from the backlash. Right? They want to do it, but they want to just do it after the election. Just can you wait until we, you know, win our races and we don't have to uh, be held accountable for this stuff and we don't have to answer these tough questions on a campaign trail where people might actually be able to penalize us for a wrong answer. So can we just wait until after November? Wait until after November, then you can rescind 42, and I'll be on board with that. But the timing is inopportune. Meanwhile, there is the polling I mentioned the other day that showed Hispanic voters. Trump made big gains among Hispanic voters, and Hispanic voters continue to flock to the GOP. Whereas Democrats believed that demographics was destiny and that based on the color of their skin and their place of birth, uh, their ethnicity, that they would just automatically be Democrats. Look, you're Hispanic. You're going to be a Democrat. This is what they thought. And then the Hispanic people who come to America, and then they have their kids and the second generation, and these are people who have come here for a better life, to pursue the American dream, to work hard, raise a family in safety and security, be able to provide more for your children than you had yourself. They are wooed by this American dream, and then they hear the Democrats saying that the country is inherently racist and uh, they can't get ahead because of the color of their skin. Oh, and we're going to give you all of these government programs to keep you hooked on it, and it's kind of socialism and all of that. And they've got some experience with those types of governments themselves, and all of a sudden, Hispanics are like, you guys are kind of crazy. Oh, and then there's the religious components uh, as well with all of the... Uh, gender theory and all of that stuff being advanced in the schools. And you got a lot of uh, uh, immigrants who came from Central and South America who are Catholic, and it's not it's not going over too well. So uh, against that backdrop, today the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee launched a digital ad campaign in local black media outlets across five battleground states, highlighting Senate Republicans' opposition to Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court. So you got to paint the GOP as racists because there's one demographic that you have you have to protect. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Eagerly awaiting the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school board meeting. There's a sentence I never thought I would say. Um, <laughs> well, no, it's it, it supposedly gets broadcast on their Facebook, and I've got their Facebook up and ready to go. And so the moment they decide to actually come into session and, I guess, broadcast it onto the, onto the Facebook, that's usually where they do it, though. Um, but I'm not seeing it. So... We will monitor and uh, join it in progress, as they say in the radio biz, jip it. JIP, join in progress. Okay. A federal judge's decision to strike down a national mask mandate was met with cheers on some airplanes, but also concern about whether it's really time to end one of the most visible vestiges of the COVID-19 pandemic. This by Kurt Anderson at the AP. The major airlines in many of the busiest airports 
rushed to drop their requirements on Monday after the TSA announced it would not enforce a January 2021 security directive that applied to airplanes, airports, taxis, and other mass transit. But the ruling still gave those entities the option to keep their mask rules in place, resulting in directives that could vary from city to city. Something to keep in mind here. January of 2021. So this directive has been in place for over a year, and a judge in a 59-page a lawsuit ruling, U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell in Tampa said the CDC had overstepped its authority in issuing the original health order on which the TSA directive was based. So it's been improper this entire time. Right? It, it overstepped its authority almost two years ago. And everybody just went along with it until some people sued. She also said the order was fatally flawed because the CDC did not follow proper rulemaking procedure. Oh, we don't do that anymore. Come on. Mizell is an appointee of former President Donald Trump. And we all know what that means, right? It means that she can't possibly be, you know, legitimate. She can't possibly be smart. She can't possibly have an understanding of law because she's a... Donald Trump appointee. Oh, Donald Trump appointee. Yeah. There you go. That that, that sufficiently conveys the terror that we should inspire with just merely mentioning her name. The White House said that the mask order is, quote, not in effect at this time and said uh, the court decision was disappointing. The Justice Department declined to comment. Uh, on whether it would seek an emergency stay to block the judge's order. The CDC also declined to comment. I am going to be surprised if they try to fight this thing further. I really will be. That's not to say they, they can't. They very well could. They very well might. I don't know. But I, I'm going to be surprised because if you're seeing the, you're seeing the pushback, the concern already on the Title 42 stuff, and that's pandemic-related, but also immigration-related, do you further agitate centrists and unaffiliated independents? Do you agitate them on the mask mandate? Because, look, the, the travel masking has always been theater, much like a lot of the stuff in airline you know, travel these days. A lot of the stuff that we go through is theater. We, I said this after 9-11. I'll never forget the former um, uh, aviation director, airport director, Jerry Orr, <laughs> years ago. He said, he said, you know what, the, when they started the TSA, he said, you know what the TSA stands for? Because Jerry Orr uh, tried to resist the, the creation and, and staffing of TSA at the airport. He said uh, it stood for thousands standing around. <laughs> That's what he said. A lot of it was window dressing. It was theater. And it made us feel good about ourselves. Oh, okay, I'll take my flip-flops off so you'll know that I'm not carrying a shoe bomb, right? Because my flip-flops are... That literally happened to me. I'm wearing flip-flops. And this was after the shoe bomber guy. Not wearing flip-flops, but with lace-up shoes. Yeah, and so they pulled me aside. I don't know why. But what, well, I had a one-way flight from San Francisco to Oakland. Or, sorry, from uh, Oakland to... Uh, uh, 
Vegas. Guy landed in San Francisco and then flew out of Oakland to uh, to Vegas. And so I guess that tripped their alarms like, oh, what's this guy flying two one-way tickets to San Francisco and then out of Oakland, which is like right down the road. So it's like actually not a big deal, but whatever. Um, United Airlines, Delta Airlines, Alaska Airlines, American, Southwest, JetBlue, uh, they're all yanking the mask mandate. Uh, some flights were actually uh, occurring when the announcement was made and they came over the PA system and said, no more mask mandate. You're free to take them off. And people were like cheering and weeping in the aisles and such. Um, and look, they said it on the planes and they keep saying it. And it's true. If you want to keep wearing your mask, you are totally allowed to do that. Major airports dropped their requirements, but they sided with the CDC in recommending that people be voluntarily masked. Right. Which is as it always, always should have been. That's the way it should have been voluntary compliance. And by the way, when, um, when the virus was first spreading so quickly, people started masking up before the orders went into place before the mandates, right? People make those rational decisions for themselves. And then you're going to have people, you have a very small percentage of people that are going to be, you know, that are going to be compliant because they're being forced to be compliant. Most people will voluntarily comply if there's a rational reason to do so, a legitimate reason to do so. And I'm glad that we're back at a sane policy. I am not as confident uh, as I'm encouraged that uh, it's going to last, that the rationality will last. I suspect it will not. Meanwhile, up in Raleigh, 68 cops, firefighters, and other municipal employees filed a lawsuit against the city of Raleigh and the mayor over the city's denial of promotions to those who have not received a COVID-19 vaccine and their requirement that employees either need to be vaccinated or submit to weekly testing. The suit was filed in Wake County Superior Court and um, also names the uh, city manager uh, in her capacity uh, as city manager as well in the lawsuit. They say Raleigh's mandate fails to abide U.S. and North Carolina constitutions, federal and state laws, and even Raleigh's own ordinances, especially against discrimination. We'll monitor that. That was from David Larson up at the Carolina Journal, carolinajournal.com. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg School Board voting to fire Superintendent Ernest Winston. Let's go to the audio. Um, So prior to moving to the first action item, I've got a brief statement to share. This is Elise Dashu, the chair. After careful deliberation, this board is meeting today to terminate Superintendent Ernest Winston's contract, exercising the contract's termination for convenience clause. We have not arrived here easily. It has been a difficult decision to end the contract with an individual whom we hold in such high regard. Ernest Winston cares deeply for CMS, for our students, our employees, and our community and he has given his all in his 18 years in this district, especially these last three years as superintendent. And he is a good man and nobody can dispute this. 
As a new superintendent, he persevered through the cataclysmic COVID-19 pandemic in what has proven to be the most difficult chapter in the history of public education in the United States. However, we believe that a different leader is needed to shore up this district and place our students on track to achieve high goals in literacy, math, and career and college readiness. Student outcomes are what matters most. We are confident this decision is the right one at the right time for the CMS staff, the community, and most important, the students. So while he is not the leader for the future of CMS, we acknowledge his character and his skills, and we thank him for his service. So before I turn to Rhonda Cheek, she's going to make this motion. Before I turn to her for the motion, I'm just going to share the rules of engagement for today. Um, when she, She'll speak to her motion. And then we will each have 60 seconds to speak to each motion. And I'm going to go by order of districts. So one, two, three, four, five, six, at large, at large, vice chair, and then me. So with that, Ms. Cheek, will you Madam Chair, in accordance with Superintendent Ernest Winston's contract as amended July 1, 2021, I move to terminate Mr. Winston's contract for convenience, effective immediately. Per the terms of Mr. Winston's contract, my motion authorizes severance payments of $24,033.33 per month for a period of 24 months in accordance to the North Carolina General Statute 115C-271. The funds to pay this severance will come from the board's fund balance. Okay, would you like to speak to that? I would like to speak to the motion. Of all the responsibilities of a school board, our greatest responsibility is to ensure the academic success Here. for all our students. Oh, we there need a second. We need a second. Sorry. We have a second? Second. Of all the responsibilities of a school board, our greatest responsibility is to ensure the academic success for all of our students. But the heaviest burden is our role in hiring, supporting, and in some cases, removing the superintendent. That is where we find ourselves today. We hired a good man and have supported his leadership journey in many ways for the past two and a half years, but now we must move forward on a different path. As we have heard many times in the last year, student outcomes cannot change until adult behavior changes. I thank Mr. Winston for his service and wish him the best in future endeavors, and I look forward to what the future holds for CMS under new leadership. Thank you. All right. Um, so Mr. Jeter will raise his hand if we get to 60 seconds. Um, so Dr. Jones, would you like to speak to this motion? I see that this has been a spectacle ramrodded by um, Lee Stashew that was not thoughtful nor aimed to be productive for this district of 74% minority children and certainly not respectful of this superintendent who has worked arduously during this unusual circumstance. Long-term serving superintendents across this country have resigned or retired, yet Ms. Dashu met with and listened to and ramrodded the termination of Mr. Winston 
get this, for convenience, not cause. I say the convenience, convenience being that of the shiny shoe people, the people of influence who want to project an image that sells or spotlights the affluence that Charlotte offers. I emphasize the term convenience, a legal term, because no cause another legal term could be established. Change in leadership sets us back. Right, thank you. Um, Ms. Sawyer. Thank you. I was approach Dr. Ruby this decision Jones. with a heavy heart. My respect for Ernest Winston does, but does not preclude me from reaching a decision that new leadership is required. Navigating this separation has been made more difficult and hurtful by board members willfully violating the board's code of contact by releasing confidential personnel information. In some cases, board members have delivered false and misleading information about my position. I can speak for myself and will, when appropriate, and not in violation of the board's code of conduct or ethics. Thank you. Ms. Marshall, do you have any comments? All right, and that, was, uh, that was Carol Sawyer. We'll uh, resume listening to the one-minute speeches from all of the board members. They're obviously... Mad at each other, mad at Ernest Winston, mad at us, maybe, voters, Lee Dashiell, mm, the board chair. Everybody's just mad. All right, news is next. <laughs> 